That's a good question. What is an idol? While we're getting ready, does anybody know what an idol is? We have a definition of an idol. What do you think? A what? A built God. A statue. That's a good answer. An idol can be a built God or a statue. What else can an idol be? Anything else? Does it always have to be a built God, do you think? It's what? It's something that you hold as God, okay? That's not God, right? It's something that you hold as God that's not God. So it can be a built God, that's right. And it can be something that you hold as God or something that's like a fake God. Or it's a God that may be even a real God that's not God. Something that you put ahead of God. Does that make sense? So if I build a statue and I think that's God, that's an idol. Does that make sense? You could build a statue of God and call that God, and that would be an idol. Yeah. Yeah. But you would say that this is a fake God. You would say, like, this God is named Bobby, and he's my God. And then that would be an idol. It's kind of silly, isn't it? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, makes sense? Okay, good. All right. Is what? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So to walk a walk, yeah. All right, let's, let's open with prayer. Father God, I thank you so much um, for those awesome questions. And Lord, I ask that today you would teach us a little bit about idols, that you would teach us about uh, the unforgivable sin. So many people ask about this sin. So many people ask, um, and so many people struggle with this. Are there things that I do that God cannot forgive, that you cannot forgive? And so Lord, I pray that as we close out our series on 1 John today, it's been a wonderful series, I hope, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would just continue to impress upon us the importance of this letter that is so often overlooked. We read it here and there, we don't think about it as much as Paul's letters or Hebrews or the Gospels or uh, Genesis or some of the other famous books in the Bible. This, this letter is so easy to overlook, and yet it is so valuable and so deep. Um, Lord, I'm not even sure we did it justice, but uh, Lord, I pray that you would... Um, that you would just impress upon us the nature of this letter, that you would help us to dwell upon it and think upon it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, so I was, um, and I hope you have enjoyed um, John and uh, this letter as we close it out today. And uh, this particular passage, when I was thinking upon it, uh, it, it, was, it was actually kind of fascinating to me because I'm a, I'm a Washington Redskins fan now called the Washington football team. Um, I refuse to call it that. Uh, we, I was just at a Redskins game at the Atlanta Falcons uh, versus the Redskins. I always go there every few years. The Dolphins play there or the Redskins play there. My son, one of my sons is a Dolphins fan. The other son's a Redskins fan. And so we always make it there because it's just hard to see. And the, it's always great because the Falcons stink and the Redskins stink. So we're guaranteed we might win a game or it's at least going to be close because we're both awful. Um, and one day we'll have a new na- na- name for my team, and so then I'll call it whatever that is. But until then, just the Redskins. And all the Redskins fans still had Redskins gear on it. Anyway, so, so um, what's interesting about the team and what's interesting about the unforgivable sin, if you know anything about my team and you don't have to know anything about my team, it's, oh, it, was, it, was, 
it came as a storied franchise. And if you're a Washington fan, uh, you grew up as a fanatical fan, as fanatical as any fan base anywhere. So a lot of times when you're in college football land, you don't understand that about pro fans, but pro fans, if you're a Packers fan or a Cowboys fan or Redskins fan, you are fanatical about your football team. We're born with like a little chip implanted in our brain and we have to love this team no matter what, no matter how bad they are. And it's a storied franchise. And I grew up with like Super Bowl wins and all this other stuff. And then unfortunately, this guy named Dan Snyder took over my team in 1998. And ever since, he's run it into the ground. So when I grew up, there was a 20-year waiting list to buy a ticket. And season tickets were passed down in family lines so that you could even get a fan, that you could keep them because they were so valuable. Fast forward to today, and stadiums are half full. And when they're half full, the majority of the fans are the opposing crowds. That's how much he's run this team, this storied franchise, into the ground in the sixth largest TV market in the nation. And games are regularly outwatched by the WNBA, Women's Basketball Association. He has run this franchise into the ground, stomped it, smashed it, grounded into dirt. Now he's done this not only by putting an abysmal team on the field that I am tortured to watch every week, but also, and I still do it, and Kelly knows I cry Super Bowl at one point every season because that's what a Redskins fan does, right? It's like a Vanderbilt fan crying national championship every year. But also, he runs a really corrupt organization. So, in this organization, they had... Uh, a group of leaders take pictures of cheerleaders changing and sending those pictures out among their own cheerleaders and out among their leadership. Now, they lied about it, and they said, no, only lower-level people took these pictures, and so they fired them all. Now, the NFL investigated and did nothing about it because apparently this isn't that serious. Then they had this big scandal where 40-plus women said they had been sexually harassed over a period of 15 to 20 years, which then unfolded into 100-plus women, which then unfolded into other male employees saying they had been bullied. This investigation went on for quite a long time by a famous lawyer, a famous national lawyer, and the report came out and wasn't written down. It was given verbally so that the NFL didn't have to do anything about it. Now, they did something slight, a slight thing about it. They gave the the Redskins a $10 million fine, which sounds a lot, but that's like pennies on the dollar. If you know the NFL, that's like a small contract for a player on their team. Flash forward to this week. Famous commentator and Super Bowl coach and Raiders coach got fired because of the Washington Redskins. How did that happen? Well, he had been shooting emails as an ESPN commentator this week to Bruce Allen, the GM of the Washington Redskins. And in those emails, he had made all kinds of disparaging comments about people. Now, the first set he made a racist comment about the director of an NFLPA, a Players Association guy. But that wasn't enough to get him fired. That didn't really matter. It was just a racist comment. Nobody cared 
about that. He could have gotten away with that, apparently. In all those emails with Bruce Allen, who denied that the cheerleading scandal was on his watch, was, was his fault, and he had nothing to do with those pictures, Bruce Allen had sent those naked pictures to John Gruden. A liar, right? <laughs> and so he had sent those pictures. Probably now the owner was maybe involved as well. But they weren't fired over that because apparently that wasn't a big deal. No, no. What happened on Monday were the unforgivable sins in our society were unleashed. John Gruden made derogatory comments against the leader of the NFL in some of the statements. And when he made those comments, he used derogatory terms about the LGBTQA3, I think is where we are now, community. And then he made some disparaging comments about female referees. So none of those other things mattered. It was these things that mattered. And these, in our society, are, of course, the unforgivable sins. And so he was fired or allowed to resign, but he was fired. And now he is being roasted all over the press he will be destroyed as a human being and not allowed to be on anything, anywhere, or get a job again. Now these sins are entirely forgivable in our society if you're from the right class, regardless of your color or background. If you're from an extremely affluent billionaire class in our culture, or if you're from an elite, secular, progressive class, you can be as ist, racist, whatever ist you want to put in there, criminal or hypocritical as, as you wish, and your sins are forgivable because you believe the right thing. Your mouth says the right things. But if you aren't from that group, you must be destroyed. And Gruden was not from that group, and so he shall be destroyed. Now, I can't speak to his heart or to his repentance. I only mention all of this to contrast that to what we're reading in Holy Scripture this morning. In Scripture, we find one unforgivable sin. In our society, we find many. But in our society, those sins are many, and you also have to be from the right group to not experience that. In Scripture... The sin is one, or maybe something else. We'll look at that, and it can be anybody. And let's look at that this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So the sin that leads to death is a bit controversial. I, I get this a lot. Well, not a lot, but I get this a decent amount. Uh, Christians will come to me or brothers and sisters who are struggling with different things, and they will wonder, did I commit a sin that's unforgivable? It'll usually come in this. God can't forgive me for this. I know that what I'm about to do, God won't, can't forgive me. Now, sometimes I'll get people saying another thing. I'm perfectly fine with doing X, Y, or Z and knowing that God won't forgive me. 
And that will be a statement of defiance. I want to do this thing, and I don't care if God will forgive me or not, right? And that's a different statement. And I get that a fair amount, too. I'll get people saying, I'm going to go on this course, and I could care less what God thinks. But a certain subset of folks will come to me at one point or another, and they will wonder if they have done a thing so bad, so wicked, that they can't be forgiven. And you might have been there at some point as well. Have you done something that you think might not be able to be forgiven? And that's what John is talking about here. There is a sin that leads to death, and he's talking here, of course, about eternal death. I do not say that one should pray to that. So what is this sin that leads to death? Now, we read about it, one, at least, in the, Holy, in the Gospels, Matthew 12, 31 to 32. Therefore, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven to people. Now, you've got to think about that. Every sin and blasphemy. Now, we live in the United States, and we are used to thinking as bla- of blasphemy as, okay, I walked down the hallway one night, dark, going to the bathroom in my house when I was in college. I'd come back from college. I'm walking down my hallway, stumbling down, uh, and I kick my toe on the doorframe, breaking my little toe. And I let out a string of expletives, that means cuss words, starting with GD, ending with GD, and having a lot of GDs in the middle. And then some other choice words. That is blasphemous. And we think of that as blasphemy. That is minor blasphemy. (sighs) What are you talking about? And we think of that because we live in a society where we don't understand blasphemy. Right? And you say, Jeff, that's ridiculous. You said cuss words, and you said the Lord's name in vain, and that's terrible. And I say to you, if you say that, you haven't been reading your Bible. Because if you crack the Old Testament, you will see what blasphemy really is. And the real deep blasphemy, remember, that's a lower class blasphemy. I'm not saying you should go do that, by the way. Don't run out, Jeff said that's a minor blasphemy, I can go do that. That's not what I'm saying. But if you look in the Old Testament, you will see that people went to worship Yahweh in the temple with temple prostitutes. That's blasphemous at another level. And they would sacrifice their children to God, Yahweh. That's blasphemous at another level. Do you understand? We have minors, and we major in the minors as Protestant Christians in the United States, and even some Catholic Christians in the United States. We think down here is sin, right? So we got, like, I was reading this book on demonology, and this person said, I delivered someone from the demon of dancing. (laughs) I was like, what? What? The demon of dancing? What in the world is the demon of dancing? Right? I mean, we major on the minors here. And sometimes we don't understand as Christians how dark life gets. But if you've been in other countries, if you've been in other areas, if you've been in Pakistan as a Christian, I would say you understand how dark the world is as a Christian. And so there's a certain darkness. And that's what 
blasphemous really is. And so when he's saying that every blasphemy can be forgiven, you need to understand that deep-level sins can be forgiven. And I would submit to you as Christians, we need to be cognizant. We need to be aware of this. Why? Because when we're talking to people out there, you need to be really careful about slamming shallow sins as major sins, and you need to be talking to your non-Christian friends and sharing with them that God forgives sin where they are. Don't present yourself as prissy. Don't present Jesus as forgiving Lord forgave me because I heard a testimony where a guy said, I drank a beer and the Lord forgave me. What? How does someone who came who, who, who was beating their family or was a raging alcoholic or was abused their whole life or whatever relate to that? It doesn't mean that your minor things aren't significant to people, but be very careful about how you speak to people. Understand that the Lord speaks deeply. And so when the Lord says every blasphemy will be forgiven people, understand that your deep sins will be forgiven as well. Your deep sins, your deepest sins will be forgiven. That doesn't mean there may not be consequences here on earth. Just because you're forgiven. Well, I murdered somebody. I'm set free. You are set free. Doesn't mean that you don't have to go to jail or face the death penalty. And whoever speaks a word against the Son, uh, sorry, uh, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now that is heavy. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so that's led a debate. How can you blaspheme against God, against the Son? How can all those blasphemies be forgiven, but this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit not be forgiven? And that's really rattled a lot of people. What is this blasphemy that cannot be forgiven? What is this sin that leads to death in 1 John? What is it? And have you done it? I've had some people tell me I've done it, so I shouldn't go to church. I really want to come to Christ. I really want to accept Jesus, but I feel like I've done this thing so I can't come to Jesus. And I'm like, brother if, or sister, if you're feeling that way, you, you probably haven't done that one. You haven't done that one. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of silly commentary out there on what it is, but there are really three things that we think it is. The three best. One, Watching Jesus himself, from the context of the scripture, watching Jesus himself, knowing that he is the Son of God, working a miracle in the power of the Holy Spirit, and calling that miracle, attributing that miracle to the power of Satan. In other words, Jesus is working a miracle right before them, and the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jewish leaders are calling Jesus, uh, saying he is acting in the power of Satan. That was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So we know at least that was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that sin would not be forgiven. They knew he was Jesus, they knew he was acting in the power of God, and they attributed it to Satan. So we know that at least was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and that sin was not going to be forgiven, and we see that in Acts carried out. Two, 
calling the work of the Holy Spirit uh, a work of Satan. This means that the work, that sin, could be committed by any Christian or individual since the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit into the Word. So not just during Jesus' life, it could be committed at any time. And three, the continued rejection of the calling of the Holy Spirit to receive the good news of Jesus. It could be any of those three. You can make a debate, you can debate, and, and, and scholars have, and, and Christians have, through 2,000 years, they've debated all three of those. There's been some others, but those are the main three that it could be. Okay? Now, given the context of the passage, I personally believe that the first option is what he's talking about. That you see Jesus working the miracle attributed to the Holy Spirit, right? And that he's saying to the Pharisees, you are condemned. And that's the parable uh, given in John. That's what Jesus dies for, the final parable, when he, when he talks about the wicked tenants. And he says, look, you have been condemned. You know who I am. You know what I'm doing. And yet you keep condemning me as Satan because you want, me, you want this power. You want to kill the son of the, 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 uh, of the vineyard. You want to kill the king, so the king's son, and you want to take over this whole vineyard. You want to take over Israel. And you see that played out all the way into the, uh, to Acts. Now, that's what I believe. That doesn't mean you have to believe it, right? There's good debate for the other two. Just because I think it doesn't mean you have to think it, okay? Even though I'm really cool and humble, but no. You guys can believe what you want, but that's anyway. That's what I think. But the second option is also a pretty good option. The third option I don't think is as good. Why? Because de facto, if you are believing that, you're not going to end up in heaven anyway, right? If you continue to reject the Holy Spirit's calling on your life, you're also not going to be saved. But I don't really think that makes sense, that that's the, that's the thing, okay? You're, you're, really, you're just not going to be saved, and, and you're just rejecting him uh, the whole way through, okay? Now, Either way, the third option de facto means you're going to end up in hell. And a lot of people say, oh, hell, why are you saying that? You're mean. It's not me being mean, by the way. Jesus himself is the one who teaches about hell more than anyone else. I'd say this from Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in... Oh, what's that last word? Did I say it? Jesus said it. Blame him. Okay. The Apostle John in our letter points out the danger of sin that leads to death or to hell. That's what he's talking about. It leads to eternal separation from God. And whatever hell is, however we describe it, and Jesus uses words to try to describe it to us, but whatever that is, this eternal separation, this eternal hell, there's a sin that leads to death. And that's what the Apostle John is talking about. And so what is this sin that leads to death? Now, here's what it cannot be, and this is what's confusing. It cannot be the first option. John cannot be talking about seeing Jesus in his bodily form, performing a miracle, and that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Anybody? Because Jesus has already gone back to heaven, right? So why would he be warning us, right? This is like 60, 70 years later. Right? Why would he be writing? Well, not 70, because that'd be 100. So about 60 or 70 years later. No, 60 years later, sorry. So why would he be doing that? He's warning us much later. 
So he's saying that there's another sin that leads to death. Nathan now is going to come up and share what that sin is. Do you have any idea? You have no idea. So what is this sin? So John can't be warning against the first option. All right? So what is it? What is the sin that you and I can commit that doesn't lead to death? And what is the sin that does lead to death? Now, understand that all sin, apart from Jesus Christ saving us, leads to death. So there is another sin that he's talking about that does lead to death. Now we're confused. I thought there was only one unforgivable sin. Huh. (sighs) Sticky wicked, isn't it? Sticky wicked. How do we square this circle? Squaring a circle is confusing, isn't it? That doesn't make sense, does it? How do you square a circle? Doesn't make sense. No. Okay. Here's what we do. 1 John 5, 17 to 19. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the world is of the evil one, but if you come to Christ, you do not keep on sinning. And what he means here is you do not keep on actively sinning. It means you, well, look, we all sin, like we, like I was a Christian when I walked down the hall, stubbed my toe, and went, rah, 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 rah. I wasn't a good Christian at that moment, but I was a Christian. We all have those moments where we, we stumble and fall, right? But I was still a Christian. But I don't actively try to sin. I'm not actively living in sin. So when you come to Christ, you're not actively living in sin, and that's what John is saying. We don't actively do that. So the person who actively goes on sinning, the person who comes to Christ and you can't tell any discernible difference, they sit here on Sunday morning and they live one way, but they go out on Sunday afternoon and the rest of the time and there's no discernible difference in how they live their life, that's a good sign that they're not a believer because they're actively living in sin. Okay? And that's what he says. But what he's saying is we're likely talking about One of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit options, this sin that leads to death, or another option, and the other option could be this, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since we are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end it is being burned. So the sin that leads to death here would be apostasy. Apostasy means being a believer and rejecting and turning from God. So in effect, it's wicked repentance. Good repentance is I repent from my sin, I turn from my sin, and I follow God. Wicked repentance is I repent from following God, and I turn and follow evil. I reject the Lord. That's what wicked repentance is. That's what apostasy is. I want to follow God, I'm no longer wanting to follow God, and I reject Him. What does that mean? So in my life, I've seen it and I've heard about it. Uh, There was one famous, uh, he's a huge pornography producer in California, and he was actually a pastor for many, many years. I listened to his testimony, 
and he rejected the Lord. He decided that there was no God one day. He rejected, and then he went, and he became this producer of mass evil. Why did he do that? Well, if he decided there was no God, then he logically concluded the right thing, that good and bad is purely made up by human beings. And if good and bad is purely made up by human beings, then he could do whatever he wanted to do, right? And so he went and did whatever he wanted to do. That's why kind of the, 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 the silliness of secular progressive society that we live in, where we're making up all these rules as we go along and we're trying to say this is right and this is wrong, and, and everyone's getting so frustrated because every six months there's a new right and a new wrong. And if you don't believe me, just track what's right and wrong right now and then open your diary in six months and another six months and another six months and another six months and then track that over years and you're going to find out that what is right today will be wrong six months from now, definitely a year from now, and ten years from now, you're going to be wicked, Right? Why is that? Because it's all made up by news reporters or some elite somewhere or whatever, some college professor. They all make it up. Why? Because they have no absolute standard of truth. It's whoever can come up with the creative, emotional idea. And that's what he did. If there is no God, there is no absolute truth. We just make it up as we go along. So however it is accomplished, turning away and repudiating the Lord in this fashion is the highest form of blasphemy. It's turning, it's a person who has tasted and knows better. This person who's turned is a person who either lived in the church and turned away, came to Christ and turned away, and they reject the Lord, right? Jesus, John, and the author of Hebrews are all speaking of a person who knows better. How did they do it? So if you're if you're not a, if you're a if you're a Arminian or if you're a Wesleyan, you would say this: the person came to Jesus Christ, received Jesus Christ, and then came to a point where they rejected Jesus Christ and left him. If you're a reformed person, Augustinian, uh, Pauline, or if you're um, if you're uh, Calvin or whatever, you would say this. It's not a person who was predestined. It's a person who came into the faith, was raised in the church, came in and experienced all of this in the church, tasted the goodness of Christ, right? And then rejected and left. They chose, they tasted, they could have had all of this, and they rejected and left. Or you would be in another camp which said they did receive something of Jesus, they tasted something of the Holy Spirit, but they were not of the elect, and they rejected that and they left. They were not somehow sealed, and they left. There's debates on how it works. Either way, they have tasted something of the goodness of God, and they have rejected, and they have fled. However we get there, it doesn't matter, don't want to get in that debate now, they have rejected, they have repudiated, they have returned from God, and they have fled. And for this, it's a high form of blasphemy. In fact, he says, you can't come back from that. Why? Because it would be like crucifying Jesus again. How can you receive Jesus and then reject Jesus and then receive Jesus a second time? You've repudiated. Now the truth is, you never would anyway. You've rejected him. You don't want him. You've turned away. You're the seed of the serpent. This is the true child of the world. 
And so what John is ultimately saying here is, look, don't waste your time on this person. That's what he's ending this gospel or this epistle with. Don't waste your time. He's talked to you about agape, love, and he's talked to you about wickedness. And now his final warning is this. Look, true love is praying and working with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are some people who just aren't going to be savable. There are some people who are going to repudiate the gospel, having tasted everything, having been among us, and they're going to turn and they're going to reject. Stop wasting your time. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with sin and still want to overcome it. But the one who rejects the gospel of Christ and leaves having tasted all of this, you're wasting your time. There are plenty of other people out there who need the gospel. Go worry about them. And that's what John is ending with. We know we are from God, he says in 1 John 5, 19. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The time for prayer, he says, is before they chose. In 1 John 5, 20, he ends with this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So John concludes the letter with this summary. Folks, this is the understanding that the Lord has given us, and I have taught you what it means to be in him, John says. This is true and eternal. That's what he's saying here. This is true and eternal. What John has taught us is what is core to the faith. And that's what he's teaching you. And that's what we get from this letter. This is the core. This is at the heart of the faith. Believe these things. Act on these things. Live these things. What he's taught us is that to be a believer means to live in community. Are you living in community? Are you reaching out to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you living in agape with one another? Or are you holding up in your house and living isolated lives. We're not called to live that way. COVID has really exposed that among so many of us. I would challenge you to break out of this COVID hole that we've all dug for ourselves. We've gotten stuck in this rut, brothers and sisters. We live in our holes, and we live by fear. In the next two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on fear. And we've lived isolated lives. We are called to be loving one another, be in relationship with one another, and be in relationship outside of our home. And then also be preaching the gospel to the world. This is what we as believers are called to do. And this is what John has taught us is at the crux of the faith. And then at the very end, he says this, oh yeah, and also stop worshiping idols. The last thing he warns us, are you worshiping idols? Are there things in your life that are idols? Are there idols you have on the internet? You know what I'm talking about. Are there idols you have in your garage? You know what I'm talking about. Are there idols you have in your family room that you turn on every day? Click. Are there idols you have in your bank account? Are there idols you have around your home? 
in your family, whatever. What are you living for? If it's not Jesus, put it away. And if you're not loving your brothers and sisters as God did and living in relationship, reorient yourself. And that's what he's calling you to do. Amen? Amen. And what was your question?